My name is John Cullen, and I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and curling. It's the story of Broomgate, how a single broom, yes, a broom, turned friends into foes and almost killed the 500-year-old sport of curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. Broomgate, available now. You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production. More than 40,000 Canadians served in Afghanistan over more than a dozen years. And the last of them came home in 2014. But a lot of them still think of people they left behind. Not only their fellow soldiers who lost their lives, but the people who helped them survive, who helped them navigate dangerous territory and heated conversations, who helped them understand culture and customs and should have been rewarded for those efforts. Most of them, though, were not. I'm urging the Honorable Sajan, Mendocino, and Garneau do the right thing and approve visas for these interpreters that work with the Canadian Armed Forces so that they can come here with their families and provide for them a much better life. Time is of the essence. There is not much of it. Now that U.S. forces are also withdrawing from Afghanistan, the danger to the interpreters who served with Canadians will only get worse. Canada once had a program to fast-track visas for these interpreters. That program ended years ago when our involvement in Afghanistan did. Now, Canadian veterans are calling on the government they fought for to protect the Afghans who helped them survive their tours of duty. Will the government listen? If they do, will it actually act fast enough to save lives in what is a rapidly deteriorating situation? What does Canada, as a country, owe to the interpreters who put themselves in harm's way to help our forces survive? And will they get it? I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. This is The Big Story. Lieutenant Colonel Mark Popov deployed twice to Afghanistan during a long career with Canada's armed forces, where he worked with interpreters in Afghanistan, but also in the former Yugoslavia, in South Lebanon, and the Syrian Golan Heights. He is now part of a growing number of Canadian Forces veterans calling for more to be done for those who helped them so much overseas. Hi, Mark. Hi, good morning. When we called you up to talk about Afghan interpreters, or just, I guess, when you talk with anyone uh, about Afghan interpreters, who's the first person that comes to your mind? Uh, would be uh, my in- interpreter that ser- uh, served with most of my time in Afghanistan. Well, there, there were two that I had, and uh, just you know, wondering what happened to these guys and, and where they are. Um, yeah, so my the interpreters I worked with are the first two people that come come to mind. Tell me a little bit about them, if you don't mind. Like, how'd you meet them, and and what did you do with them? And you know, I think a lot of people don't quite understand uh, the relationship and how tight it is. Well, thing one thing we have to understand is that uh, when the Canadian Armed Forces deploy somewhere, typically they do what are called rotations, where a group of troops will come over. Usually, it's a six or eight month tour of duty and then return to Canada. So you would have troops from Petawawa, Valkerche, Edmonton cycling through. And it, it's often been said that uh, we weren't in Afghanistan for 11 years. We were there for uh, 11 one-year uh, tours. And if you divide that into six months, that's 22 uh, different tours. Now, the people that never left were the interpreters. 
and uh, in understanding a, uh, a complex society like Afghanistan, particularly in the tribal areas in Kandahar province where we worked, uh, from the Western mindset, you know, two or three days of cultural awareness is not enough to get us ready for it. So the interpreters were more than just um, language translators. They were our window into how tribal dynamics worked, how society worked, who the power players were, um, what the nonverbal cues in any conversation was. They would talk to us afterwards and say, mm, I don't think he was telling you the truth, boss, or he didn't want to talk about this. Uh, stuff that we would not pick up just from a pure uh, linguistic interaction. So our interpreters were uh, quite honestly in Afghanistan, the body of corporate knowledge that we relied on as different groups of Canadians cycled in and out. So I met my interpreters when I took over uh, the area that my uh, combat team, a combat team is about 250 troops uh, of all different uh, combat trades. So I had armored reconnaissance troops, I had infantry soldiers, I had engineers, combat engineers, I had artillery soldiers all in my group. So we took over from uh, in October of uh, 2009 in Kandahar province from a, a, a combat team from uh, Valkarche. And the interpreters uh, who were employed by the, the larger sort of Canadian contingent, they just remained. So they had worked for the previous group and then they started, they stayed in place and started working for my group. Because of the security situation, they lived in our camps, they lived with us, uh, ate with us, um, spent all their time with us as part of our team. So it was, uh, it was a very close relationship by necessity and um, it was absolutely vital for me to understand in a brief time, I couldn't in no way get an entire handover of a, of a six, seven month rotation from my, my predecessor and ask all the right questions. So the interpreters were key in getting all my, my folks up to speed on the location we were now living and operating. I can imagine in a situation like that where they're, you know, seem to be so closely tied uh, to Canadian forces that probably creates some pretty dangerous dynamics for them outside of the base. Absolutely. Not only for them, but their families. I'll, I'll give you a, a, an anecdote. So our interpreters, and this was funny, those, those who didn't understand the relationship thought we were um, uh, ignoring their culture. Uh, and it's completely the opposite. So our interpreters all chose Western-sounding names to be addressed by. And this was not because we couldn't pronounce their own names. We couldn't pr pronounce Abdul Rashid, and we respected their names. But it was for their security. They didn't want to be known as Abdul from Coast Province, to the locals because the word could get back to uh, the Taliban and their families could be threatened. So mm -hmm. our interpreters, instead of being Abdul, Muhammad, Rashi, Khyber, they were Bob, Bill, Don, Chris, Paul, Gord. So they all chose their own name. They were proud of the names they had chosen um, because that kept them safe. So absolutely they took risks and their families were at risks no matter where they were in Afghanistan just by virtue of uh, these interpreters working for us. Do you know of anything that happened to any of them or their families uh, while you were there or, or uh, previous or uh, post your tours? Uh, I do know that uh, a couple of our interpreters uh, during my uh, latest deployment had left uh, our service because they were worried about their families, whether family members were sick or they were worried about threats to their families. Uh, also, I had a couple of interpreters that had worked previously for uh, Americans and um, chose to stop working for the Americans and, working for, and started working for another contingent, whether it was uh, Canadians or Danes, uh, because of the perceived threat would be higher against uh, interpreters working for Americans uh, in, in their minds. So I, I do know the interpreters were hesitant to talk 
with us about their families. It was almost like they didn't want to burden us with that sort of knowledge. But I know a lot of them, uh, you know, you'd see them on their phones, you know, talking with their family members with a lot of worried looks on their faces. So there were threats made to the families of the interpreters um, during both my deployments to Afghanistan. In a couple of minutes, we'll talk about what we need to do uh, for these people. But first, maybe let's touch on uh, what, if anything, has Canada done so far uh, for any of the interpreters who've worked with the forces? Like, how does that relationship work once uh, the army leaves or the forces withdraw? Well, that's a that's a really good question. And quite honestly, I don't know. I don't have all the answers. I know in the years immediately after I uh, came back from Afghanistan, so you know, 2011, 2012, 2013, I wrote a number of uh, letters of reference for a number of my uh, former interpreters because I had about 30 or 40 uh, attached to my team uh, at different times. Uh, so I wrote, we and each of these interpreters, when we left the mission, we would give them a letter. Uh, I would sign it as the commander, a letter of reference saying, you know, from this date to this date, he worked for us, he was reliable. And uh, some of these interpreters had files with you know, 10, 15, 20 letters in it from different uh, Canadian commanders. Um, so between giving them their own reference letters, and then I wrote some reference letters that were forwarded to, uh, I believe, Immigration Canada on behalf of interpreters who had applied for visas. I believe there had been some sort of special uh, fast-track program a few years ago for them. But uh, quite honestly, I didn't, I didn't follow the issue until uh, I got just restarted in it, uh, you know, about a year ago. Um, following it again. Tell me how you got restarted into it. Uh, the uh, member of parliament for uh, Thunder Bay, Dr. Marcus Palowski, uh, one of his constituents had gotten uh, the member engaged in, in the interpreter issue. And one of the interpreters that was still in Afghanistan was trying to come over was, had been one of mine. So he had a letter with my signature on it as reference. So um, Dr. Palowski's office reached out to me you know, confirm, you know, do I know this individual? Would I vouch for him? I wrote another letter. And that's how I became re-engaged uh, right around uh, December of 2020. I've seen a number of veterans, yourself included, sort of loosely lobbying for this. Is there any uh, organized plan? What are you guys doing? Uh, well, I know there's a there's an organized uh, plan and a Facebook group run by a retired uh, captain named uh, Dave Morrow. Uh, it's, it's a I guess you'd say an, an informal organization of concerned veterans. I don't think the Department of National Defense is doing anything about this, and I'm not sure what uh, immigration is doing any, about this at all. So it very much seems to be uh, grassroots um, at this time. The big story will be back in just a minute. My name is John Cullen, and I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and curling. It's the story of Broomgate, how a single broom, yes, a broom, turned friends into foes and almost killed the 500-year-old sport of curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. Broomgate, available now. You mentioned that during your time there, uh, your group would have 30 or 40 interpreters. So we must be talking about a relatively large number of uh, Afghans who were working with Canada overall during the time there. Well, I would think so. And in, in addition to the interpreters, uh, there were also at, at each of the camps uh, 
local Afghans, like you do the, the small Canadian outpost, local Afghans would be uh, hired to do, you know, work, a lot of cleaning work or some construction work, stuff like that. And that was a, a method we used as a confidence building measure with the local elders by hiring some of their young men, giving them some income and showing the people who, that we were there to protect that we trusted them enough to have them uh, work with us. Uh, so there were also, you know, Afghans who worked on Canadian uh, construction and humanitarian assistance projects uh, as well. Uh, they're less visible and probably they're, they're not as under as much threat as uh, our interpreters would have been. But there are quite a few Afghans, much like in all our other deployments in the former Yugoslavia and everywhere else Canada's been, where we try to uh, engage the local population and, and hire uh, local workers wherever possible. So yeah, there are quite a few Afghans over the time. If you think we had Canadians in you know, first in Kandahar, then we had a mission in Kabul, then back to Kandahar with a, you know, a large mission, you know, 2,500, 3,000 troops, and then back to Kandahar for the training mission. And of course, for training, you need even more interpreters because so much of the training is, is one-on-one with uh, with our Canadian training uh, staff, training uh, Afghan soldiers. So uh, yeah, there were, I would imagine, more than 1,000 at least uh, interpreters who had worked for Canada throughout our time there, at least. I'm not trying to ask you to speak for anyone but yourself, really. But what I'm curious about is, why do these folks tend to be forgotten as soon as we leave the battlefield? Part of that is, I think, the fragmented nature of how we deploy. So when uh, my squadron got ready to go over, my my core squadron was uh, 100 troops uh, from Petawawa. We were deploying as part of a larger organization called a battle group, which is a collection of, of, of squadron and company size elements. A battle group is about 1,200 people. That was headquartered in Edmonton. So troops from Petawawa, we spent a lot of time in Edmonton and in, in Alberta uh, training uh, from 2008 to 2009 to get ready to go. Once we got to Afghanistan, we were augmented with engineers, artillery soldiers to, to bring our numbers up, who were all from different places, whether Edmonton, Gagetown. We served together, we fought, we came back to Canada, and um, once we got back to Canada, our uh, augmentees, our additional soldiers from Canada's reserve units all went back to their home stations. The soldiers all went back to their home stations, and in my own uh, my own squadron, all the leadership from the rank of Master Corporal up to myself as the Major, we were all uh, posted away to different duties within two months of our return to Canada. So because these cohesive groups only form, they deploy, they fight, they come back, and then they disperse, it's very hard to maintain a, a corporate awareness. And a lot of us, um, you know, in the leadership ranks, we, you know, go on to different career level courses, advancement in your career, uh, high pressure jobs. And uh, unfortunately, um, the pace of, of life keeps you really from keeping things like the interpreters at the forefront because you've handed your mission over to another group. Uh, you trust the other groups doing its job, taking care, and uh, and you just kind of, it, it kind of drops from your mind. But now, I mean, thinking about, you know, the fact that, you know, Bagram Air Base has now been, you know, handed over by the Americans to the Afghans. Uh, just recently, the Taliban posted a video on YouTube of them taking and occupying the former uh, Canadian forward operating base at Massimgar, where Canada's Leopard tanks were, where there were uh, maybe a thousand Canadian troops in the village of Panjway, which so many Canadians fought in and around and died in and around, and uh, occupying the Panjway District Centre that Canadians helped set up. That really brings it home that uh, we are not there anymore, and therefore those people that helped us uh, could be under threat. What should we do about that? Well, I look at it and I say that uh, our interpreters already demonstrated their 
their commitment to uh, maybe not Canada as a country is a bit grandiose, but definitely to Canadians to helping us. They've put themselves and their families at risk and threat to help us. And yeah, you, you could say, yes, they were paid for their jobs. Absolutely. But you have to feed your family and there's other jobs they could do that would not have exposed them to rockets, mortars, gunfire, roadside bombs, being shot, uh, having their families threatened. So we'll park that aside. Uh, so these folks have all been also security checked um, for their reliability. So I would see no reason why there would be uh, immigration bureaucratic holdups to them coming into Canada on I don't. I'm not sure. You know, some sort of special visa, special program. If we could uh, fast track, you know, thousands of of Syrian refugees to come in a few years ago uh, and set up, you know, reception centers and programs and deploy military troops to to assist with uh, getting these folks uh, screened and vetted into Canada, then surely we could do something more than we're doing right now for our Afghan interpreters in terms of uh, letting them come to Canada if they if they want. What kind of response uh, have you and some of the other veterans been getting as you've told these stories? You know, um, I'm one of the folks in media who admittedly sort of let the Afghanistan story drift off the map as uh, Canada's involvement ended. And I had not thought about the people who worked with us that were left behind at all. Well, I think a lot of us are, are, are in that same boat because, you know, quite honestly, I, it wasn't in the forefront of my mind. But I will tell you that as recently as, as yesterday, I've had my uh, fellow veterans uh, reach out to me and say, hey, we saw your piece on CTV News. Uh, you know, my interpreter sent me an email. He's still stuck in, you know, in Kandahar City. Uh, how, how can we help these people out? So from a grassroots level, from my former uh, soldiers that I've worked together with, uh, former supervisors, my peers has been um, strongly supportive. Has anybody in government, aside from uh, your MP who initially reached out to you, engaged on this? I don't think so from my perspective. I mean, I got a, a, a message by email from my own member of parliament and uh, just a, a message of support uh, for for my efforts to help my uh, uh, the, the most recent fellow that I was helping. But other than that, no, not that I've seen. And lastly, just asking you to speak only for yourself again. Why do you think we've left these people behind? It doesn't seem to mesh with the talk we talk, I guess, about Canada's involvement overseas and, and what we do over there. Well, I think we kind of, from an institutional standpoint, just viewed the interpreters maybe a bit as a as as a resource, huh. uh, we were in Afghanistan. We, you know, use the interpreters, uh, and I think because not a lot of our public understands exactly what we were doing in Afghanistan or exactly how our interpreters helped us, um, it didn't seem like a big issue. I mean, during during the war, uh, for a while, there was you know quite a lot of support, Red Fridays, everything like this, and then that sort of waned as people got interested in other things and forgot about it. And because the interpreters really only ever, uh, you know, interacted with us soldiers who were there and then we came back and from a government and population perspective well we're back we're safe uh, great survived the war but um we as uh, military folks and including those you know still serving this the you know, commanders of the missions i guess never considered it as part of the the plan to to exit afghanistan and i really think we to the detriment of people that gave a lot for us we overlooked them institutionally Mark, thank you for this, and I hope your campaign starts getting some traction. I hope so, and I'm happy to uh, have folks like you uh, supporting it and getting the word out so that our public understands uh, some of what happened over there. Lieutenant Colonel Mark Popoff. 
That was The Big Story. For more, head to thebigstorypodcast.ca. Find us on Twitter at TheBigStoryFPN. Talk to us anytime you want via email, thebigstorypodcast, all one word, at rci.rogers.com. And of course, every podcast player has our show in it. You can like us, you can follow us, you can subscribe to us, you can listen to the podcast, actually, and you can tell a friend because that's what helps this show grow. Thanks for listening. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. We'll talk tomorrow. In 2007, TV network CBS dropped 40 kids in the middle of the New Mexico desert as part of a brand new reality show. These kids would have to build their own society from scratch. And if this sounds like Lord of the Flies to you, well, it was meant to. We were on this mission together, and we were going to prove to the world that we could make a better society than adults could. I'm Josh Gwynn, and I want to know what this wild TV experiment was really about. Split Screen, Kid Nation, a six-part podcast from CBC. Available now.